Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the New Books Network podcast in Asian American Studies. I'm your host, Donna Doan Anderson, a PhD candidate at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And joining me in conversation today is my colleague and friend, Mika Thornburg. Hello. Today, we have the privilege of interviewing one of our own, UCSB alumni of History and Asian American Studies, Dr. Chrissy Yi Lau. Chrissy Yi Lau is an assistant professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University. Her research and teaching interests include Asian American history, U.S. women's history, California history, and public history. She is co-editor of the Auntie Sewing Squad Guide to Mask Making, Radical Care, and Racial Justice, as well as the author of New Women of Empire, Gendered Politics and Racial Uplift in Interwar Japanese America, which is the focus of our discussion today. New Women of Empire was published recently by the University of Washington Press. The book centers the compelling life histories of five young women and men in Los Angeles to illuminate how they negotiated overlapping imperialisms through new gender roles. With extensive youth networks and the largest Japanese population in the United States, Los Angeles was a critical site of transnational relations. And in the 1920s and 30s, Japanese American youth became politicized through active participation in Christian civic organizations. By racially uplifting their peers through youth clubs, athletics, and cultural ambassadorship, these young leaders reshaped Japanese and U.S. imperialisms and provided the groundwork for future expressions of model minority respectability and Japanese-American feminisms. Sounds really interesting, right? Yeah, absolutely. Let's get started. Let's do it. Hi, Chrissy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Donna. Hi, Mika. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be able to chat about my book. Yeah, and I know that Mika and I really enjoyed reading your book and discussing your book as we were thinking about questions for this conversation. So I'll just jump right into our first one. How did you come to this project and what inspired you to write about gender, empire, and Japanese American history? Well, thank you so much for that question. Um, I would say... It was a confluence of factors, um, including my personal 
and political interests, um, what sources were available, uh, and then where where the field was going. Um, so it took me a long time to come to this particular project. Um, when I entered graduate school, I had a lot of interests, uh, and I must have changed my dissertation project five or six times. Uh, and I, I think um, I was looking and looking for and trying to verbalize what one of my professors uh, would call my burning question. And I think I got close to it when I read um, uh, Dr. Aaron Quainin's uh, book entitled Ingratitude. Uh, and I really wanted to write about Asian American daughterhood or what it's like to be uh, and come from a, uh, to be a daughter and come from an immigrant family. Uh, and so I really wanted to do it as a historian. Uh, and so uh, with that topic, I started to just dig into archives. Uh, I started going to uh, the Bancroft, going to the Hoover Institution archives, uh, and I came across uh, these interviews conducted with college-age Japanese-American women. Uh, and they were interviews conducted in the 1920s through the survey of race relations. Um, and one interview in particular um, really got me. It was an interview with Susie Yamamoto. She was a Japanese-American farmer. Um, and I became really emotionally invested in her story. Um, she had really shared some intimate moments and thoughts, like when she was growing up, she um, wanted to make friends uh, and, and was really out and about with town, with, uh, in her small town. And one time when she was writing with her friends, uh, and they were white friends uh, out in the field, she saw Japanese American women working in the fields. And, and when they're working, you know, they, they're like, they get maybe get dirt in their faces, their hair's not done properly. But uh, in that moment, she confessed that she felt embarrassed by them. Um, and I remember uh, just being so uh, taken with her story and with her confession. And also that that was a moment that could have like been plucked out of my own experience growing up. Like I've definitely felt moments of embarrassment. Um, so just with that, I uh, was really pulled into uh, the lives of Japanese American youth during the 1920s. And I really wanted to build the, the social, political, cultural world around these feelings that the Japanese American youth like shared uh, during these interviews. Um, so I wanted to pair like my interest uh, in gender and youth with uh, the, the growing uh, scholarship around empire, uh, because that was where uh, Japanese American history, Asian American history was heading. Uh, like the, the transnational turn had already happened. Uh, and now we're thinking about uh, not just the U.S. empire, but the Japanese empire building. And here my, my work really builds on uh, Dr. Ichiro Azuma's uh, scholarship. Uh, and and so, uh, so I wanted to think about how does gender um, interact, change um, between these two growing um, empires across the U.S. and Japan, and how Japanese American youth, like how they were impacted by it, but also how they reshaped gender um, because they really thought about uh, how 
their role and how they wanted to make a change and develop their community uh, to create better relations between U.S. and Japan, particularly after the 1920s uh, and at the height of anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, and then lastly, I want to say that I get asked the question a lot, like why I became interested in Japanese American history. Um, I'm Chinese American. I'm the daughter of Chinese immigrant families. So I'm not Japanese American. Um, and I, I do want to say that I don't believe that you have to be of the community that you study because that's really limiting. But I I do believe that um, a scholar who is studying a community needs to be held accountable to that community. So while I'm not Japanese American, um, I do uh, see myself uh, accountable to, the, to that community and their continuing struggles. Uh, so I, uh, I make myself accountable in two main ways, right? One is I engage with uh, Japanese American history experts and scholars. So I cite a lot of uh, Japanese American experts uh, or history experts. Uh, and then two, I continually educate myself and figure out how I can continue to um, be an ally and be in support of the ongoing struggles and campaigns and activism and organizing that Japanese American communities do. Uh, and so one of them is uh, they ask for allies, they ask for um, teachers and educators to continue educating about uh, the incarceration experience of Japanese Americans. Um, and so I see myself also uh, partaking in that uh, and being accountable in that way. So part of, part of my work is to do the labor of uh, educating folks, educating non-Japanese American folks um, on the histories of immigration, incarceration, uh, and activism of Japanese American communities. Well, thank you so much. I really loved how you um, described coming to this project. And I think we can see a lot of that in the book, right? Um, specifically, uh, I mean, I think your um, interest and your enthusiasm and also um, all the things that you talk about in, in terms of holding yourself accountable to this commu uh, community um, I, really comes out in, um, in the book. And I, I wanted to actually go back to um, what you were talking about with the source materials and specifically uh, the survey of race relations that you said kind of spurred this interest and particularly the story of Suzy Yamamoto. Um, your book presents a really interesting combination of cultural and intellectual history methods um, that you use to excavate the lives and perspectives of of these young Japanese Americans, wondering how did you negotiate and engage with different kinds of source material to understand their stories? And how did you pick the five individuals to focus on for each for each chapter, like Suzy Yamamoto, who is sort of the focal point of your first chapter? Hmm. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I would say that um, my approach to negotiating uh, and navigating across these two, like uh, these multiple sources, um, is largely through a lot of trial and error, uh, and finding conversation partners and finding uh, previous models uh, of how previous scholars had engaged with these sources. Um, so, as I mentioned, um, my main like source was the survey of race relations, uh, and my other. 
uh, main source was the Rafu Shimpo, which is the Los Angeles-based uh, Japanese-American newspaper. Um, and so my approach to the survey versus re relations was a combination of trial and error and, and just trying to find conversation partners. Um, so I told you the story of how I just became so emotionally invested with uh, Suzy Yamamoto's interview. Um, and I would say that one, um, when like doing the work of the being a historian and going to the archives is a very lonely endeavor. Um, and it, and it's, uh, and it's, really great, but but also it, it, it would be really great um, if I could find conversation partners. Uh, so I was really looking to share like what I found in the archives. Um, so, uh, so one of the ways in which I try to create conversation partners is to actually assign um, some of these primary sources in the classroom. So seeing students actually as my conversation partners, uh, at the time I was doing a lot of adjuncting. Um, and so one of the ways to kind of integrate my research with my teaching was to think about my work um, in the classroom. Um, and, and it was so great to hear students' feedback on these interviews. Uh, I will say that they loved the interviews uh, and because they could identify with like these college aged young women and young men as well. And they felt like it, it, it was the same kind of issues that they were going through. But they made a lot of really great observations and they asked really great questions that helped me move my research forward. Um, and this was really useful because... For me, when I was um, in the archives and I was reading these interviews, I was so emotionally invested, I couldn't see the forest from the trees. I was, I was too in it and I couldn't have this broader perspective. So students asked really great questions um, like, uh, like what happened to these young women and men after they took the interview? Uh, and that started me on the path of looking at these life stories of um, like, picking five people and looking at their life stories across the 20s to the 40s. Um, and another student um, really pointed out some of the power dynamics within the interview. Like a lot of these students, when they're doing their interviews or they're writing their autobiographies, they're doing it because a professor had asked them to do it. Um, and so that's a power dynamic too. They might be sharing that they feel embarrassed, but it, um, and they might be feeling that, but it also might be what the professor wants to hear. Um, and, and, and back then it like, it was so much tied with academia, like Christianity and social work. Like that was what they were trying to impress upon these students. Um, so it made me think about, um, political context and how that shaped the interviews. Um, but I will also say my second conversation partner was um, my writing group from UC Santa Barbara. Uh, and that was uh, made up of two other Asian American lit crits. Uh, so they were no historians, but um, one of them uh, is Dr. Lily Wong. Um, and, and she just, lit crits just have a great technique of close reading. Um, and so when I had an interpretation of Suzy Yamamoto, she challenged it. Um, and she really made me think about um, not just that these subjects are um, kind of robotic and non-thinking and just kind of accept uh, these larger frameworks of Americanization, but also that these subjects have agency um, and that they might do one thing, but they are, there's many different interpretations to that one thing. Uh, and, and so that really made me think 
more about the the this um, this uh, this dichot not dichotomy, but this like having a public persona, but also having private motivations or private intentions. Like, what are they willing to um, what are they willing to share, and what are they willing not not to share? Uh, and so. I think that helped me to approach uh, those particular sources in a way where I'm trying to see what, like, what kinds of agency these youth have. Like, they are not just um, history is not just happening to them, but they are also reshaping it, and they're trying to move through these larger structures and and trying to find their agency within it. Uh, and then um, I will say my other main source with the Rafu Shimpo, I really look to uh, historian Valerie Matsumoto uh, and her book, City Girls. Uh, and she used the Rafu Shimpo as her main source as well. And she could write a whole chapter just based on one line uh, in the newspaper. And I thought that was incredible. So I, I looked at how she really approached um, a, a sort of social and cultural history of uh girls clubs and, and what they were doing. Uh, and um, so I was able to approach the Rafa Shimpo and, and sort of pair the, pair, the, with, pair the kind of these larger social organizations of what they were doing, like the YWCA uh, and the Oliver Club with um, some of their more personal forms of agency that I saw um, in the survey of relations interviews. I love that you're in your response, Chrissy, you're pushing back against this notion of history being a really isolated discipline or an isolated practice by not only seeing yourself in conversation with scholars that have come before you, but also in conversation with your own communities. And whether that be students or whether that be your um, colleagues or your friends, right? And also shout out to UCSB's long legacy of Asian American studies, right? The three of us obviously um as a part of that, and it's an honor to be a part of that. Uh, but I was thinking specifically kind of the points that you're bringing up about academia, Christianity, and social work, the kind of political implications um, of your work and how your students really push you to see uh, these, these surveys as well as the lives of the individuals you're talking about in this book in new lights. And so I'm going to transition into talking about um, the content of the, the book itself, right? So I was you know, one intervention Mika and I discussed when we were talking and preparing for this interview um, that we thought was really important was how you take seriously the role of class and the mobilization of status as a part of what you call the long racial formation of model minority within Japanese American communities. So my question is, how does the experience of a rural young woman like Suzy Yamamoto, who's come up a few times in our conversation already, differ from that of urban educated elites such as Chioko Nina Otera, who is the focus point of your third chapter. And despite their differences, how are their political involvements and social investments reflective of similar struggles as new women of empire? Well, I'm so happy that I get to talk about these, uh, these, uh, these five chapters, these specific lives of these people. Um, and I, I and just to tr backtrack a little bit with Mika's question of why did I ch choose these five, um, I think it goes back to just me reading a lot of interviews, but um, something about each of these interviews pulled me in. Um, and I think they all 
kind of reflect a particular feeling of youth during this period of anxiety. So with Suzy Yamamoto, it was this embarrassment that she felt of uh, witnessing kind of improper gender roles uh, and having it reflect back on her and what that meant for her own um, relationships. Uh, With um, Maceo Dodo, it was the fact that he wanted to save this the reputation of this man who had fallen because he had a gambling addiction and uh, that his family had committed suicide. Um, with um, Jean, uh, with Chio Otera, it was this is feeling that she was just trying to model this good girl um, and, and keep that persona. Uh, and that's why she never cared for dancing. And then with Jean Sakamoto, um, it was the fact that he wanted to be a social worker, but he had to carry all of this family labor that he inherited and he couldn't take time away from working uh, at his family's business to enter college. And then with Suze, uh, sorry, with Lily Sato, it was the fact that she didn't she didn't want to play the piano, but she couldn't tell her mother, um, why she didn't want to play it. She couldn't disappoint them. She felt so much debt. Um, and so I think uh, uh, just pointing out those specific moments and, and me wanting to spend the time to kind of pick these apart um, was why I was particularly drawn to these, these five uh, Japanese-American reform organizers. Uh, so going back to your, uh, your question, Donna, of comparing... Um, Suzy Yamamoto with Chio Otera and the role of class. Um, so I would say that the main difference that class plays into this um, is that uh, Yamamoto, because she is from a rural area uh, and she comes from a working class family, uh, her family is uh, built on farming uh, and small restaurant business. Um, she has to take on what would typically be seen as men's roles. Um, So she learns a lot of the business aspect. She gets her hands dirty being a farmer. uh, And she has to basically purchase the land because the alien land law at the time would not allow immigrants to purchase land. Um, And she's a citizen, so she can. Uh, Whereas Chio Otera, um, she... She, uh, because she comes from a middle-class family uh, and she lives in the city, she has the privilege to be able to stay um, in what would be typically seen as women's roles. Um, So she she grows up in a nuclear family, although her her parents do do eventually become divorced. Um, But her expectations are to... Uh, be committed to the family in terms of doing a lot of the reproductive labor. But she has the time to be able to participate in a lot of extracurricular activities that Suzy Yamamoto doesn't doesn't get the chance to, right? So she um, has the chance to um, become a pianist as part of the uh, Japanese Union Church. She joins the YWCA uh, and she later on becomes a housewife. Uh, she marries um, one of the business leaders of um, downtown Japanese uh, American LA, right? Or uh, what would what they would call uh, Japantown or a little Tokyo. Uh, so 
The main difference is that uh, Yamamoto, um, because she is of working class background, she, because she's from the rural community, she has has to kind of enter into men's roles, which 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 um, I think plays into some of her insecurities around um, why sh- she's scared to see someone else doing improper gender roles because that would be reflected onto her. Uh, whereas Chio Tara, um, she gets the privilege of staying in traditionally women's roles. But I think that uh, what is like common and what similarities that they both have is that they both are um, they both are committed and and they both play their um, their part in the family and so doing a lot of the family labor. Whereas it's Susie having to. Um, continue the family business by purchasing a land and starting her own uh, garbage company uh, and running it from when she goes to LA and like um, and tries to go for a semester at USC, but she has to return every weekend uh, to run the, the the pig farming and the the garbage service to San Bernardino. Um, and and Otera too, I think she is also very much. Um, committed and she has to participate in the fa- uh, the family labor, a lot of the reproductive labor. And it looks very different. Um, for her, it's about like taking care of her sister. Uh, and it's about um, maintaining appearances, like joining her, her husband when they go out to uh, social events in the community. Uh, and it's also about um, when her sister becomes sick, she has to take care of, um, she brings in her sister's uh, daughters to live with her uh, and then gives them a job at her, uh, at, at their, uh, their drugstore that they're running. So um, they do different kinds of family labor, but, but because they are Japanese American women, they, they, they are designated, if you will, like they are resigned to having to do these different, very different kinds of family labor. That was a really um, insightful answer. And I think really captures kind of the great work that you do in the book around kind of um, intersectional analysis and um, showing the kind of multiplicity of gender politics, gender norms, um, gender ideologies that exist um, existed for this group of people. Um, and I'm wondering actually if we can kind of turn to speaking about the men of your book. Um, you've discussed them a little bit in your kind of previous answer around the specific moments that drew you to each of these historical actors. But, um, you know, you talk about two men, Masao Dodo in, um, chapter two, who illustrates the kind of conservative patriarchal gender norms and views of what uh, you call new men intelligentsia. And then in chapter four, you use the life of Jean Sakamoto to describe transnational muscular Christianity, which I loved that term. Um, uh, For those who haven't read the book, transnational muscular uh, Christianity um, that Chrissy talks about is defined as a philosophy of masculinity built around health, sportsmanship, American internationalism, and ethnic attachment. Um, I'm wondering in what ways did these forms of masculinity and the individual men themselves diverge from one another? And in what ways can we kind of draw parallels between, you know, their context, their hopes, their struggles? Yeah. How are they kind of similar? And also how are they different? 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Um, Thank you for that question. Um, So I would say the main difference um, is that Dodo's masculinity is very much attached to Japanese empire building, whereas uh, Gene Sakamoto's masculinity is very much attached to American empire building. Um, So with uh, Maseo Dodo, he is very much in the circles of the Japanese immigrant elites, um, meaning he um, is he came as an elite. He migrated as an elite. Uh, he became a newspaper man uh, after he received his degree at USC. Uh, he loves debating. <laughs> he participates in the debates team. Uh, and so he's, he's really ab- about the mind. Uh, and envisioning what does the Japanese empire look like outside of uh, Japan. Uh, And so he's really thinking about creating a community with uh, different parts of the Japanese diaspora, including like the U.S., but also Mexico, uh, and then uh, like other parts of the Pacific Islands. Uh, And he does this because he's like a newspaper man. He's constantly reading newspapers. He's constantly reading books. Uh, he is in conversation with other Japanese American newspapers across California, but also um, newspapers um, in Mexico and in, in the Pacific Islands. Um, and so that's really his world. Uh, and he um, he really envisions uh, what they would call the Pacific era, that the U.S. and Japan would be the two co-leading empires. Uh, whereas Dodo... He is very much about the body. Uh, he he comes from like a working class family. He has to take over the work of um, his family's uh, inn where they rent out rooms. But he also uh, works then in like uh, in the grocery grocery industries. So he has to a lot of he has to carry a lot of the grocery and do a lot of the uh, books behind it, uh, and then. He grew up actually as an athlete. He played football, although he sat on the bench a lot. Um, But he um, played basketball. He also played uh, uh, baseball. And then he went on to coach basketball and baseball. Um, And so his circles are very much uh, grounded locally uh, and with a lot of um, American public schools and the YMCA. So he has a lot of interaction with white Christians um, and their vision of American moral imperialism, where they're trying to instill fitness uh, and manliness 
through kind of uh, modern ideas of health and uh, and Christianity. Uh, and and so he so for Gene Sakamoto, it's very local. He interacts with. Uh, white, but also Japanese Americans, and then also like actually other ethnic groups um, like the Latinx community uh, and the black communities uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, so I would say they, 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 very, they very much present like two very different masculinities during that time period. Um, but I think uh, what is common with the both of them is that uh, Dodo would actually very much approve of Sakamoto's masculinity. Like he actually wrote about how, yes, um, we do, Japanese American youth, they do need to kind of build themselves up and 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 make a name for themselves in sports, uh, and whether it's baseball or whether it's basketball, it'll really show um, the 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 greatness or how Japanese American youth are are uh, fitting into American society, but also the greatness of both U.S. and Japan. Uh, so, the, so he saw he actually like really rooted for uh, Japanese American athletes, uh, and I do think that both of them they really wanted to mentor the next generation. Uh, they they saw themselves as mentors and mentoring other Japanese American youth. Uh, They just had very different ideas of doing that. So for Dodo, it was about mentoring them to really prepare them as men of um, two co-leading empires. Uh, And then for Sakamoto, it was really about preparing them locally uh, to have these uh, very uh, muscular and Christian values. Um, but I think both of them uh, had a vision for how they wanted to shape Japanese American masculinity. Yeah, I really loved both of those chapters on masculinity, which actually, um, you know, gave me the question, why did you decide to name the book New Women of Empires? I was a little bit surprised <laughs> until I turned to your table of contents. Um, because you do, you do discuss masculinity and you do discuss these sort of new men of empire and the way that gender politics um, of empire impacted them. But yeah, can you talk a little bit a bit about why um, and how you chose the title of your book? Yes. Uh, so... The main reason why I ended up with um, the, the title New Women of Empire um, is because I see that as my main contribution uh, to uh, the scholarship on Japanese American history, Asian American history, um, as well as U.S. women's history. Uh, so pretty much I just wanted to make very clear what my contribution is. Um, but you're right in that I do talk about new women, but also new men. Uh, and so originally my my title, when I was putting it through peer review, I had titled it Racial Arbiters. Uh, and so that sort of encompassed both young women and young men and how they were arbiting uh, between these two different empires, right, U.S. and Japan. Uh, and uh, But when I got the reviews back, uh, they they pointed out that one of what was exciting and new about my work um, was this notion of new women of empire. And back then I also had kind of termed it uh, the trans-Pacific new woman, um, which uh, my contribution was, especially in U.S. women's history, uh, typically when they study new women in the progressive era, um, this idea that 
young women are taking on new gender roles, like moving into the public sphere, voting, taking on social work, um, or even um, for Black women, they, they get to now move into the home, which has historically been um, uh, really uh, not allowed for them to do because they, they have a whole history of enslavement that forced them to be out in the fields working, right? Uh, and so my contribution to that scholarship was that um, we need to think of the new woman, not just locally or regionally or nationally, but to think of it more broadly in a transnational perspective. So not just thinking about Japanese American women and the new gender roles in the U.S., but thinking about how Japanese American women negotiated um, models of new or modern womanhood across the U.S. and Japan. Uh, so. So I, I at first thought I would name it the Trans-Pacific New Woman. Um, however, I also did attend a keynote at AAAS, and the keynote was on the keyword uh, Trans-Pacific. And I, I really took seriously the, the major critique uh, that some scholars had about using that term too loosely. Um, uh, uh, mostly that um, scholars typically, when they use the term trans-Pacific, they're referring to kind of East Asian ethnic groups. And oftentimes when when scholars do that, they kind of ignore or elide the histories of the Pacific Islands uh, and how that uh, should, should be the center, right? Uh, and so then uh, I moved towards the transnational new woman uh, as the the title, uh, but then my editor came back and said, how about New Women of Empire? Which is great uh, because that was actually my subtitle uh, for my, one part of my introduction, which was on the historiography of the US New Woman. Uh, so we landed on uh, New Women of Empire. Uh, and while yes, I do wanna center uh, Japanese American women and their contributions to the making of the Japanese American community, um, I, yeah, I do see this work as also like really just, uh, interrogating gender. So I do, uh, include women and men. And, and so hopefully they can see some of that in the, in the subtitle of <laughs> gendered politics and racial uplift. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of the new, or the transnational new women, um, your fifth chapter was so fascinating, um, particularly in the waves that you uh, make with interweaving the piano as this kind of symbolic representation of these transnational gender constructions. Um, and so I love how, you know, your book presents an interesting engagement with the negotiations of gendered expectations uh, of the United States and Japan. And we found that your narrative about Lily Sato in chapter five was particularly fascinating in demonstrating this concept. Why is gender construction, dissemination, and reconstruction as demonstrated in the story of Lily Sato so critically or so critical to fully understanding these two trans-Pacific transnational empires and their engagements with one another in the years leading up to World War II? Thank you for that question. So I have been really thinking about this question too, like why gender uh, when studying empire? Uh, and I, I think that gender really helps to illuminate how empire is constantly in flux. Um, and, and also like for me, when I'm studying youth, that 
it highlight it's a site to highlight like youth's contribution uh, to empire building, uh, and so I I I open up my book. Uh, actually with Lily Sato's story um, and then kind of move into it in chapter five. Uh, and I talk about how typically in Japanese American history or or Asian American history in general, when we, when we study empire, oftentimes it's already automatically like a masculinist like category, right? Uh, and oftentimes we always think of it as uh, an immigrant category that these immigrant male elites um, migrate to other countries and try to establish empire, uh, either through trade, through colonization of land, or through uh, a governance, right? Um, and so um, my work sort of decenters that uh, this kind of masculinist understanding and immigrant understanding of empire um, by centering people like Lily Sato. She is a young woman. Uh, she's um, born in the U.S. Um, and so how does she how does she um, interact with and engage with empire? Um, and really, by the 1920s, I argue that gender is the main site uh, in which we can sort of understand uh, how Japanese American youth continue and when they inherit um, this these ideologies of empire from the immigrant generation. Uh, the gender is kind of the main way in which they um, inherit, but also negotiate and reshape uh, the community's understanding of empire. Uh, so when we look at Lily Sato and how she engages, yes, that there is that uh, Japanese empire vision of building good women, uh, good women meaning that they have to show proper domesticity, that they have to uh, be housewives, and they and that they're going to someday bear the children, uh, and that's really the the kind of first wave of um, what it means to be good women for the Japanese Empire. But then, by the time that uh, by the 1920s, with second generation youth like Lily Sato, they're engaging with very different models of empire and gender, um, like for instance with the YWCA and the Girl Reserves, where they have this new movement to empower women, um, whether it's moving them into the public sphere or encouraging them with Christian social work, right? Um, and so for me, I really wanted to interrogate how Sato uh, negotiating negotiated this expected gender role onto her where where her mom really wants her to be a pianist uh, but but her uh, um, really finding her way in this new world of the YWCA and and wanting to make a change in her community but not quite sure how to do it um, and so she is really inspired um, by the the actual um, why the new mission of the YWCA, which is to actually move towards decolonization rather than empire building. Um, and so Sato, she she shows that the empire building is in flux because she creates her own kind of new transnational women uh, that would actually serve both uh, Japanese empire and U.S. empire, uh, but in a new way, right? Like they, she's really emphasizing um, decolonization, cross-racial solidarity, uh, and she emphasizes women to 
to know how to do proper domesticity, but also women to move into the public sphere. Uh, so she's doing a mixture and a combination and, and trying her her best way to promote her vision of, of what, what it would look like for these two empires to coexist with each other. She, she doesn't act, she disagrees with Dodo. She doesn't think that they're going to be the co-leaders, um, but she really wants to move towards decolonization. So in that sense, I think also when we look at gender, we can actually see alternatives to these very masculinist ideologies around empire. Um, and for me, like Lily Sato is, the sort of hope of the book, uh, she she is the most committed to cross-racial solidarity. She's the most committed to desegregation uh, and to empowering young women. Uh, and so uh, to me, it shows alternatives of empire building as well. Yeah, I absolutely loved that chapter. Um, I think that chapter as well as the, the kind of whole book as a... Um, as a whole kind of demonstrates this really, you know, key focal point for you, um, the contributions of these young people, uh, right, to changing ideas of gender, changing ideas of empire, changing ideas of community uplift, all these sorts of things. Um, And I think you really beautifully illustrate that um, kind of impact and contribution through these stories, Um, so much so that I I would assign it uh, to my undergraduates, right? I would definitely assign a chapter of this book uh, when I teach Japanese American history. Um, With that in mind, uh, I was wondering, what do you want your audience, particularly young people who are about the same age as your historical actors and, you know, might be sitting in a Japanese Americans class or an Asian American studies class um, and encounter this book? In, a, in their college classrooms, what do you want them to take away from the, the book? What, are, what What's kind of the big um, thing that you want uh, your audience to um, get from, from this work? Yeah, I love that question so much um, because uh, I work at a teaching-centered institution. Um, so one of my main audiences are college students. Um, I write about college students and I I teach college students, right? And I want college students to read my book. Um, And I will say that um, I I want them to get uh, so much from my book. Like mainly I want them to see themselves uh, in these stories, uh, whether it's like a shared feeling, right? Um, And then to, to really build their toolbox Uh, for how to navigate the current world that they are living in. Um, So I I really began to reframe this project um, in the middle of uh, the Trump presidency. Uh, And so I think that political moment really shaped my approach uh, and shaped my audience. So when I started to really uh, reshape the manuscript to focus it on college students. Um, I was, we were deep in the middle of the Trump presidency and it like so much had happened within those first two years where, um, he just passed such anti-immigrant, um, legislation and, and he was detaining and separating families at the border. Uh, and, Uh, Every day, something horrible was happening, right? Um, And so I I wanted to 
not be distracted, but I wanted to focus my energies onto this manuscript and write it uh, as a way for young people to not be in despair of the political moment, but to be able to look to models to see how they can equip themselves to kind of navigate this period of anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, the, 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 two, the 2020s um, or even the 2010s, right? The, it, it, it has similar parallels to the 1920s in that there was a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment then, um, particularly for Japanese Americans. Like what, what do you do after your community has just been banned uh, from the U.S.? What do you do after you, all of your efforts to uh, get citizenship or to you know, purchase land and have the rights to your land are thwarted at every turn? Like, that's the question that these youth are facing. They are like, how do they move their community forward even though there's so many limits and there's, there's so much um, discouragement uh, and they're, they're told that they are not wanted here. Um, and so I, I, I turned to writing during that moment and turned to these subjects um, as a way to understand, like, what, what, how did they find hope? How did they build community despite all of this, um, despite, like, just legal barriers and full-on racism? And I wanted, um, I, I hope that college students will read this uh, to know that these young people who are, like, really like college age, they're like 18 to 22. They they become emergent leaders of their community. And that the young people today, like even like we have so much issues that our generation has passed on to them. Like they, college is so expensive. Um, they're m- working multiple jobs. Um, like how, like the environment <laughs> is, uh, is, continually degrading um, because of global warming. Uh, I I want students to read this so that they can um, get ideas for how to build their communities, um, figure out what works and what doesn't work, uh, and just be inspired that they can they can like start to envision for themselves like how to have how to navigate racism, how to um, encourage and inspire other youth, uh, how to organize in, in whatever like themes or topics that they care about, whether it's, uh, whether it's environmental justice or whether it's about gender, um, through whatever means that they want to do, right. Whether it's art or whether it's, uh, through sports. Um, and so that's also why I, I sort of tried to pick a variety, um, across these young people, like focus on like a coach uh, or focus on a social worker that was focused on girls clubs. So I wanted to provide a lot of different examples to show that young people um, can kind of build community in multiple ways. Yeah. And I think on that point, right, to think about how this book not only contributes so much to the literature of gender history and Japanese American history, but also to this notion of youth, right? Um, and how we study youth and the role um, that young people play in these kind of emerging tensions uh, and, and shifts in, in history, right? Um, so I absolutely love that you kind of bring this back to 
youth being the emergent leaders of their communities and how this book it offers an inspiration to students who are reading it um, of you know what they can do and the possibilities and potentials um, of their actions. So speaking of inspiration, um, I just want to round out this conversation, which has been so fruitful and enlightening and such a joy to have with uh, thinking about what comes next for you, right? So what, would you be willing to share what projects you're working on and or what's inspiring you in the present? Uh, yes, uh, thank you for that question. I I have been thinking actually about two different projects um, that are built off of uh, this first book manuscript. Um, so the first one uh, is a project on uh, Afro-Asian uh, feminist solidarities. Um, and it's actually built off of um, the chapter on Lily Sato uh, and how she attended the 1926 student conference at Asilomar. Uh, and that conference was uh, where she drew inspiration because that was the first time she saw this model of uh, different women of color coming together uh, and, and trying to desegregate the YWCA. Uh, and so I uh, really want to delve into that some more. Um, I want to look at the organizers of the 1926 uh, YWCA student conference who sort of had this vision of, um, uh, of, of moving forward different uh, communities of color um, and moving and, and expanding the YWCA beyond um, just like the U.S., but thinking of it in transnationally and then also desegregating it. Uh, and then my second book project, uh, I... Or, or I guess my the third one. Um, I actually also want to build on uh, chapter three on Chio Otera's um, social work, but also um, some of the conversations that they were having around the of, of dancing and how the community held town halls because they didn't want their daughters to dance. Um, so this history is actually going to explore um, uh, sex education uh, within Japanese America. Uh, so um, I wanted to look at how Japanese American leaders, particularly uh, Christian leaders, uh, and as well as the Japanese American youth, how they work together to try to um, create like these particular values around sex and marriage uh, and women's bodies. Um, and so a lot of what I find interesting is that they published like sex education pamphlets in the newspapers. Um, they hired lecturers to come in and give lectures on social hygiene. Um, so I'm hoping to delve more into that and see how, um, how these values around sexual mores kind of evolve. Um, so part of that was inspired by um, last spring in 2021 uh, when the Supreme Court overturned uh, Roe v. Wade um, and the kind of Christian nationalism that that really spurred on that movement. Um, so I wanted to delve into this longer history of how um, Christians kind of shape 
shape our sexual mores or shape the values around sex, uh, and in particular, how, how that occurs in the Japanese American community. Wow, all of that sounds so amazing. And I know um, people will be excited to read these projects and to see how it's expanded from this book. Um, so thank you so much, Chrissy. And thank you so much, Mika, for joining me in conversation today. It was great discussing your book um, and hearing about how this project has developed over time. And I, I know that I, I'm not speaking for myself in how much this book offers different contributions to the study and you know, what we can learn from it. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.